They're taking a deep RPG mechanic and they're serving it up for an audience unabashedly for a more female-centered audience. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for us as game designers to think about what kinds of experiences other audiences want. And it's not about making those shallow. I think it's a huge mistake when you look at a hyper-casual game that thinks that the only thing that this audience wants is match three. Everything's gonna be around match three. They're not unsophisticated. Like there's maybe an idea that like, hey, the casual audience is learning more about game designs as they've grown up with these games and they're like accepting of, you know, more RPG audiences. False, that's wrong. Game designers are learning how to apply classic game design systems to new audiences. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Katie Kuffel, and as always, I'm joined by Brett Novak, the CEO of Liquid and Grit. And on this episode, we speak with Tabor Voyer. Tabor is VP of Product at A Thinking Ape and oversaw product strategy during a time when the company more than doubled revenue and grew from 50 to close to 100 people. We cover strategies for training teams and individuals and how to solve open-ended problems throughout the product pipeline, adopting methods to deal with resource restrictions as a company, decentralizing product management, and much, much more on this episode of Creators at Work. You know, you've done a ton of work, obviously, in optimizing monetization. You have had an awesome career in mobile gaming. You've also done talks about this. And if you could talk a little bit about like the biggest insights you have and your philosophy around optimizing monetization, kind of how you got into the space and big mistakes or wins you see out there that we could all kind of learn from. When I started in games in Vancouver, there was like a big transition away from AAA games and into free to play at Facebook and mobile. And I was working at Eastside Games, which was started by Jason Bailey, who had created and sold Super Rewards. And Super Rewards was the payment provider for, for Sync of Poker, actually, before uh, there were Facebook credits, right? So they were the, the mediation platform of the time that sat there and in between the game and the players and did credit card payments, but also, you know, surveys and, and things that we think of as a, as an offer wall. Now they, they sort of created that with Tapjoy. So they were the two, two competitors and Jason had started this games company and we were making some farming games. And then I started as a data analyst in 2010 in Facebook games. And, you know, I, I think at the time they're really there really wasn't this idea of using data for games, just games as a service was brand new. And so I was doing this job as a data analyst. I had unpaid internship for, for a few months to start and um, I got hired and it was this you know, wonderful opportunity to learn from a company that was really scrappy and learn how to use data to make design decisions, but there was no one else doing it in the entire city. Everybody was coming from AAA and they had these ideas about game design that, um, you know, you launch a game and then you sit back and you watch the credits roll and you move on to the next project. Nobody knew how to do live ops. So there I was this, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed new graduate trying to like figure out how to do data analysis on these, these massive games. And we launched Hot Farm, which was a farming game, very similar to Farmville, but instead of growing vegetables, um, very fitting for British Columbia, you would uh, go out into the forest and you'd grow marijuana. And at the time in 2010, this was pretty 
you know, it was a bit controversial, but it went viral, right? So the viral channels on Facebook are open. We scaled up to hundreds of thousands of users within, you know, a few weeks and we're breaking, the servers are breaking because nobody knows how to like architect games like these in Vancouver. And I was doing all the data analysis and, I'm, and I'm, I was really lucky to be paired up with this um, older German guy named Michael Nata. And he had worked for MySQL, he worked for banks. And the only reason he worked for us at Eastside Games is he thought we just had really interesting challenges. He could go work anywhere, but he wanted to do a, like a really interesting job with lots of challenges with very little resources. He just was there for the challenge. And he taught me so much about how to use data, how to build a BI warehouse. He eventually ended up finding a bunch of you know, data-driven decisions that made a lot of money. And the first one that I found was live ops events. So I, I noticed this like trend. Everybody wanted me to follow whatever Pincus was saying, follow like retention. Retention is the most important thing. And then the next week, Pincus would say something else, like, uh, you know, it's uh, day one monetization is the most important thing. And so we we're kind of chasing our tails with, with analytics. And I, I just did a really basic timeline analysis of like, look, when we launch content, revenue goes up. We launch content, revenue goes up. But we're only launching content around like, you know, 420 or Christmas time. And I just said, let's just invent reasons to, to launch content, come up with events. And so, yeah, we just started this event cycle and doing live ops and we would launch something every two weeks. And based on that decision, we were able to generate a lot more revenue and the team kind of looked and said, well, you know what, why don't you start working on design? So I got into design, ended up becoming the producer of the project, but I had nobody around me to talk to about design decisions. I would go to the uh, meetups. We'd have these indie game meetups and there'd be dozens of people there all trying to make games on mobile, trying to make games on Facebook. And I'd be like, hey, let's talk about monetization. And it was like, people would just stare at me like I was an alien. I'd be like, we don't want monetization. We need those microtransaction people. I don't want to talk to you. And I was like, I was floored. Like, why are you here to make a make a business and and people just thought it was a dirty word so i started my own meetup and i just started inviting people down from san francisco from from different companies to come and talk to the community in vancouver i just became known as the monetization guy i wasn't i didn't want to be the monetization guy i was just the only person talking about it in the city you know the whole city has kind of grown up to be a lot more focused on on business and you know, a lot of these AAA studios died because they didn't make the transition very well. And then I moved over to a Thinking Ape eventually and just started working as a producer there. And slowly, yeah, worked my way up to be VP of product, just doing live ops and, and always making like really good, you know, revenue-based incremental gains on products with very low amounts of resources. That was kind of my specialty. Well, you're in good company because I was lead revenue PM on Zynga Poker. I always loved it because I felt like you had the steeper funnel to deal with. You had to create better products to really get people, as I would tell, say, for people to take their hand out of their pocket and get their credit card. And you couldn't just rely on big funnels, lots of users, virality on Facebook, because it was that smaller group. So I feel like I was blessed to start out in that revenue focus because it made me be a better designer because I had to have a higher conversion on every step of the funnel from the pop-up to the intro flow to whatever I was building. And the second thing that kind of I thought of when you were talking was when I was at Zynga, all that sharing, that knowledge sharing is something that Zynga did really well. We've talked about this, right, Katie, on other podcasts that was somewhat of a secret sauce that I don't think gets talked about. And I still think that's something companies struggle with today is the ability to share information internally and have a really good system because that's a huge advantage. If you have multiple games and one game does something well or badly, it's incredibly important and very difficult to do well. Yeah, so true. I mean, documentation is, is you know, kind of what we're talking about there. We've grown to be up to close to 100 people now. 
we're, we're feeling some real pain with people sort of not having access to the knowledge that other people, you know, have at the studio or somebody leaves and they've, you know, documented what they did, but in a drive and, you know, their Google drive somewhere and it's, you know, got a funny name. It's not labeled properly and nobody ever can find this, you know, this document that explains some experiments. So we're really struggling with that now. And that's kind of been my focus for the last little while is how do we create a better culture of, of knowledge sharing, you know, throughout the studio that's not just based on tribal knowledge. It's really important because it de-risks or keeps the control or the value of, of what happens in a business with the business. And I, I know I get a lot of flack sometimes about how I talk about businesses, but it's important for businesses to have that power over the employee in some ways or retain the value. Because if the value or the knowledge is so much in that employee, that employee has a lot of leverage on the company, one, but also a lot of risk on the company, like you said, if they leave. And that, that's bad for everybody. That's not just bad for the business. I mean, I'm the owner of my business, so I speak like that, but it's also bad for other employees, right? Like it's bad for you if someone just decides to leave, gets an offer from Google or some you know, amazing offer they have to take and they walk out the door with all that knowledge. That puts you at risk as an employee of a thinking ape, right? Do you have any like ideas on how you're thinking about solving it? So at our studio, we have, you know, every studio has to organize around their unique situation. And in, in our unique situation is that because we've been in Vancouver, um, we've had to rely on training a lot of people up internally. So we will, we've had, we have a lot of people who started our studio. One of our lead designers, you know, started as a community manager and just showed a lot of initiative and a lot of desire to grow and learn. And so for us, it's not just about losing that information if somebody leaves. It's also about giving the, the people who want to grow access to information that accelerates their growth. So we do this through what we call product cells. So the idea is that on any product, if you want somebody to grow, you have to give them open-ended problems. You can't be prescriptive in what they're building. At some point, you have to ask people to go out and solve an open-ended problem and give them a lot of coaching. But ultimately, you need to give them the accountability and responsibility for not just achieving a metric goal, not just producing a feature, but solving some kind of business problem. And it's not something that game designers and engineers and artists are typically comfortable with. So you need to give them a space to learn and to be comfortable. But one of the things that you can do to de-risk those efforts is to give them a whole lot of knowledge, give them access to playbooks, and playbooks around solving different problems. So we have this concept of playbooks at our studio and what they are is how did we solve a specific problem and what did we learn from it? And then become living documents that get updated over time and revolve around somebody trying to solve one of these open-ended problems. And so that's kind of how we tackle it is just to give, give people really good access to information and then create a culture where anytime you're doing some work that you're documenting what happened and why, and trying to think about it from an experience, like an experiment framework where you have a hypothesis and you try to prove that hypothesis right or wrong, use data to evaluate it and then improve on it. And the nice thing about that is in the playbook, somebody can take that hypothesis and then continue to work on that concept, even after the work is, is done on the, on the initial um, product cell, because all of the information is there and the hypothesis is still there for them to look at. It sounds like you've standardize the process of solving ambiguous problems. Yeah, that's the goal, right? Like some people are motivated by different kinds of, by problems presented in different ways. So I still use the same method. Like I have a designer who, you know, the way that I push her is I say, you need to do, like, you're not doing good enough. Like, you know, you aren't, you're not happy with your work. 
go and do better and do better by the end of next week. And she just gets angry at me. And then she comes back at the end of the week with five times the quality of work. She needs somebody to like hold her accountable. But what we're trying to do on the on the systematic side, I guess, is, you know, we want people to go and start new games. We like when I was talking before about how each studio has to deal with the certain resource constraints that they have, the resource constraint that we have, and this is changing with remote work, obviously, but is attracting people to move to Vancouver and work in Vancouver and be a lead at a studio that is a bit smaller, it's really difficult. We pay really well in the top 75th percentile, at least sometimes for some roles in the, in the top 90th percentile for Vancouver and for Canada. And still Vancouver is as expensive as San Francisco. It's just a very, very expensive city. So we've always had a lot of trouble attracting really, really high level talent to the city. And within the city, there's a big pool, but we're still competing with uh, a lot of other studios. So instead of trying to solve an insolvable problem, I've said, well, how do I create more people who can solve open-ended problems? And the only thing I could think of, at least for myself, was I was just given an immense amount of responsibility and open-ended problems and held accountable for them at a very sort of early stage in my career. And I just put my hand up for every project and I was just given as much as I could, as I could handle. And, and not everybody's going to do that. But what you can do is say, look, the best way to solve hard problems is to be comfortable solving hard problems. And, and the best way to get comfortable doing that is to practice. You don't put a kid on skates and then say, all right, um, you've never skated before. We're going to play a game of hockey. It's full contact. Have fun. It doesn't make any sense, right? You're going to get clobbered. But what you're going to do is say, okay, let's start with skating. And slowly you're going to get better and better. Maybe we give them the stick, then we give them a puck. Eventually they're going to practice enough that they can, you know, play a full game of hockey. And it's the same thing when you're, when you're making games, like product management is this weird field that is different everywhere, right? It's a product management is different, whether you're working for a big company or a small company at games. Um, but the one thing that it all has in common is that you are responsible for getting things done and moving things forward in, in a way that there is no playbook that's going to answer every problem for you. So you have to get comfortable with ambiguity. You have to get comfortable trying things, but also being very self-reflective, being very analytical. You know, if I could, if I could just hire people, it would probably be a lot easier. If I could just hire somebody and know they're going to fit into the culture and it's going to be great, it's going to be easy, then, you know, all my problems would be solved. But I don't have that luxury. I have to grow and grow and train people. And we're getting to the point now with remote work where we're starting to be able to hire people in like a broader you know, geographical area and it's starting to become easier. But what I love about that is they bring in new ideas into the system and, and we've hired some senior people come in and they said, you know, this is great. Like, this is a wonderful way to train people because now I don't have to be the only person solving these problems, which is a huge burden to bear. You know, the typical AAA industry, there's idea of producer. It, it was created by like an early EA, they had this idea that they were going to make video games like the music industry, where a producer would be the person that was like the genius behind the team. And, and they were gonna make these video games huge. But what that model creates is you have this one person who is like the, the most important person on the project and they're the rock star and they have a, a supporting cast of people around them that make the work go, go well. But when that person leaves, it's like the producer of this game just left the studio. It's like, look, the studio, has a huge amount of people. There's you know, sometimes thousands of people working at a studio. And if they're really good at documenting their knowledge, documenting their playbooks of how to do things, one person leaving shouldn't be the end of the world. I just, I don't want that. I don't want to be the, the guy that, you know, everybody's depending on. I want to work with everybody and have everyone considering all aspects of the product, not just 
the producer or the product manager. So we got rid of uh, product management as a role and we have a triad. So we have engineers, artists, and game designers, and they share product management responsibility for their product across the three of them. It means sometimes they can be a bit slower, but it also means that um, an engineering lead learns product management. A game design lead learns product management. An artist lead learns product management. And then when we're ready to start a new game team, they're ready as like a triad to go start a new game. Because those are the components of a good game. It's art, it's game design, and it's engineering. And the product manager is usually the person that's like helping them figure out the business side. You can teach business to artists, you can teach business to engineers, but you have to be proactive in saying like, look, this is your responsibility. Everybody, everybody's responsibility is, is the success of the product. And it takes a while for people to get that. Like artists will want to make art. They want to make good art. Oftentimes we'll get someone who maybe is like a new art lead and they'll come in and they'll want to make decisions for personal reasons. Like maybe they want to see some kind of representation in a game or they'll want to draw, make the art quality better for just like selfish artistic reasons. And there's no amount of like a producer telling them like, but we need to make more money. So make it shinier and sexier. It's time to make money. That just does, it doesn't work. But if you give an artist a goal and you say, look, you're responsible for this piece of art generating more revenue. No designer's going to tell you what to do. You just go, you, that's your job. Give them the framework to figure out what's going to work. They will learn all those business skills and they'll grow as artists and they'll see that, you know, the, their goal and responsibility is, is the product, product itself. And there's nobody for them to fight against, right? It's not like, oh, the producer wants us to do this like thing that we don't want to do again. Instead, it's like, oh, my job is based on me making this product better. And, and it becomes about serving the product. And, and I found that that's way more effective to get people to be motivated and focused, but it's slower and it's harder, but it works for us. Can you talk specifically how, I don't love the slowing down thing, because if you know anything about my company, we are basically our strategy is speed. Can you talk a little bit about how that works specifically? So you have three product owners, and then how would they make a decision? Like, give me an example. On our game Kingdoms of Heckfire right now, we want to scale up some of our user acquisition. When we say to the team, like, your goal is for us to grow the game, which means we need to grow the daily active user count, which means we need to be able to get more installs and to get more installs, we need either more revenue or we need to have an earlier payback window for our ad spend. You present that entire problem to them. You say, figure it out. So they have to go through and come up with a roadmap that's going to hit those goals. And the engineering you know, team is going to have ideas like, one way to maybe improve ROAS would be to improve early retention. One way to do that might be to make the game faster to download. But a product person's never going to prioritize that unless an engineering person fights them for it. Why wouldn't a product person prioritize that? I just think that in a typical setting, I've never seen a producer or a product manager be convinced on their own to proactively make that choice about making the game faster to download because they're going to think about the next feature. I would say typically a producer might say, we need to do better targeted offers. We need to find a way to make you know, an offer pop-up that targets our early game users and improves monetization in the first 30 days. So we send a better signal back to our UA team. And the artist is maybe going to say something like, uh, we need to optimize our content pipeline so we can ship more content. Now, how do you make a decision between all of those things? At least in my eyes, the product manager or whoever you want to call them is ideally can convert that as best they can into a quantifiable amount. And then yeah. 
you make the decision based off of that. If it's a good product manager, they would say, okay, well, download speed is going to increase the funnel by X percent. And that will lead to Y percent of installs retaining for 30 days, which will translate into revenue. And then look at the designer's proposal and, and go through all of those exercises and try to convert it into a universal metric, which would be money. So instead of one person doing that, the three of them do that together and it broadens the number of ideas that come to the table and it makes the evaluation and estimation better because an engineer is going to have a more honest estimation of how long it's going to take to build something. And they're going to have the context to be able to evaluate that next to the designer's idea or the artist's idea. So instead of one person being the single point of failure to make all those decisions, you're giving that responsibility to a multidisciplinary team who have the same incentives and the same um, desire for, for an outcome and the same goal, but you're broadening the amount of input that comes into the decision, which is where things can slow down because, you know, if they don't agree, they're going to have to like come up with ways to quantify that. When you do product management, we can all say, Hey, I think this feature is going to improve things by 10% based on, you know, I've watched it in another game. I've seen other games do it, or I've got a, I've got a great report from liquid and grit that this feature raised, you know, revenue by some amount, but it's going to be specific to your game and, and it's always going to be some kind of guesswork. Uh, we've just found that that's the best way for us to get a team of people ready to go and start a new project. And that's why we're willing to accept some like little things being a little bit slower on our live ops games, because we're looking to build the next game team rather than like, how do we build up one team that stays on one live ops game for years and years. And years? I don't see product managers being biased towards one thing or another. If they're great product managers, I see them ideally just looking at what is being proposed as solutions and trying to quantify that. Maybe a better way of framing this is you don't need a PM. I completely agree with that. As long as you have someone doing the PM function, which is, I really feel like the product manager just facilitates that conversation, which is like, okay, how do I take your proposal and convert it to a dollar value so that we can all talk about these different ideas and these different groups in one look, one table, one number. So, I mean, I yeah. kind of agree with the fact that you don't need a PM, but I don't know if I agree with, like, I don't like slow, Any, anything to do with slow is like a ding, ding, ding for me. Like you say slow <laughs> yeah. and I'm your boss. Like I would be like, well, how do we fix it? How do we get faster? Yeah. If, and if I could hire easily like very experienced product managers and, and bring them in, then that might, it might be different. But what we're trying to do is, is to train these disciplines to do that product management function. And it's exactly how you describe it. Like that is, that is the process. And, uh, and so the slowness I think comes not from like, it's not slow to make decisions. It's just, um, you know, if you're working on a really big live ops game and you have limited resources, you have to like, really prioritize, you know, a small number of features that you can execute on. So we also are working in an environment where, you know, software engineers in North America are very expensive. That's probably our, our biggest bottleneck right now is software engineering throughput. And, and yeah, so I think the slowness comes also from what I was talking about before of like giving people an open-ended problem to solve is like, you have to give them time to research. Our company's probably built less on speed at this point and a lot more on stability and growing things in, in a way where we're resource constrained, but velocity is always important too. So I don't want to like discount that. We're always worried about like, how do we get faster? What can we, what can we do to get faster? We're willing to accept a small amount of slowness when it comes to teaching people how to, to solve these problems. But it sounds like what you've done is you've taken the role of a product manager and placed that responsibility into the game designer, the engineer. The important thing is that that there's a system that 
allows you to create decisions quickly, hopefully, and also with accuracy, right? That's ideal. I always kind of think about what is the most ideal. The most ideal is the most accurate, fastest decision-making process that you can create. When you're faced with a team that, you know, always trying to take problems from first principles, let's say, you get people that are really, really learn to break down problems and, and think about them quite deeply. But you also sometimes get a scenario where people don't want to look outside themselves and outside the org to learn. And I think that is a challenge as well, where because we're a little insulated up here in the North, there's just some amount of like knowledge sharing that you can't get without being exposed to it. And that's, then that's where it can be challenging to get a team to like move really quickly, but also say, I want you to think about this problem really deeply. I want you to research. I want you to go play other games. I want you to think about all the different ways that you could solve the problem before you act. And at the same time you say, but I want you to act quickly. And that sometimes I think is the push and pull between um, stability and speed. And maybe stability is the wrong word, but like really, really thoughtful progress versus acting quickly. Um, so it's like a combination of being like very, very information driven, but also trying to like pull back to first principles and say, how do we solve this problem? Trying to find the most truth in your assumptions as possible before you take the next step of investing you know, engineering resources into something. And it's because we're, we're constrained on engineering resources. We don't have, you know, extra people to be like, hey, you know what, go take five engineers and build a feature and see if it's going to work and figure out what feature is going to like make monetization. We have to be really, really careful about what we build. That makes a ton of sense. I think what you're getting at is you can't blindly think speed is everything, right? And if you have a huge investment or a huge risk, then you don't want to act hastily. The equation that I hope most product managers are thinking about, or in your case, designers, is this you know expected value equation of likelihood to succeed, potential upside, and cost. And within that framework, depending on the project, you want to think about how, where do you invest? If it's a hugely costly project, then you want to invest upfront to reduce the risk. So you want to spend your time focusing on making it right. And like you said, you're constrained by developers, then don't just get your developers working right away. If you plug that into the math model that I'm talking about, you would realize that's a bad decision because the likelihood of success is low and the cost is really high. You have to create the most ideal situ situation for what inputs you have, right? You can't blindly take how Liquid and Grit runs their system, how Zynga runs their system and go, yep, this is it. This is the system. We talked about how in in Canada, there are certain rules around contractors that make it difficult for you to hire contractors. It's a perfect example, right? You can't then just go adopt our system because our system is built on contractors, a lot of contractors. And, and I talk about this a lot when I try to explain our system, like every part of the system are dependent on the other parts of the system. So if you just go blindly say, yeah, you know, Zynga does, you know, they really ship MVPs all day long. And you just apply that to a thinking ape, which is a completely different funded model. Like you're not going to succeed. Like when I started at Eastside Gabe, like that was the model. It was like, do what Zynga is doing. They're smarter than you. Just copy Zynga. I'm like, well, yeah, they have a lot more people. Like we're 12 people at one point. I'm like, what do you want? I have one developer and one artist and we're, you know, servicing a game with 100,000 plus DAU. I'm like, I'm doing all the live ops design. I'm doing all of the feature design. I'm like, I can't just copy Zynga and people will do that. And the inverse is true is that you have to be careful about adding things to a company. I think that this also happened at Zynga as well, where we had a lot of people from another organization come in and bring some of their things that worked really well at their culture into our culture. 
and it's it doesn't it's not in isolation, right? If you change one thing, it's going to impact other things and other things and other things all the way down the line. So you have to be careful about how much you add to stuff as well as how much you take away or what you adopt. It sounds Brett, like you've done such a good job of defining your culture, right? It's really important to you. Every conversation I've had with you, you talk about the things that you're doing at your company and how it's a system and it all works together. And, and that culture that you're driving, you, you know what it is and you've written it down and you have, these rules that, that you won't allow to be violated because you think it's the right way to operate. And so if somebody new comes in, I imagine, you know, you'd be like, look, you can't change anything for at least a year, but you got to come and work the way we work before you change anything. So you understand how every piece of it works together. And, and that's what we do as well. Like when we hire a new lead, we have them go and do uh, like a live ops event from the first, like that's all they're doing. They're just training to be a level one designer before they get to even touch level five design work. That's, that's just how, how we, uh, you know, onboard people because we want them to understand why things are the way that they are and have a holistic picture of the things that are working and not working. And then once they've experienced a little bit of how the company operates, then they can come in and say like, well, why do you do it this way? And if the answer is, um, that's just the way we've always done it. Great. Change it. If the answer is because, you know, of these resource constraints and they have a, a solution for that, great, change it. But if they don't have a solution, they just don't like it, or it's just not the way they, they're used to working, that's not a good enough reason to change things because it's an entire system that works together. And improving that system requires like knowledge of, you know, the things that you might break if you change things and like an understanding of what you want to improve, just like product management, right? Which is probably why you've created this culture and these rules is probably comes from part of your product management background. You're like, look, this is what's important. This is what matters. I uh, totally agree. And I, I forgot to add this earlier, but you might like this is I'm thinking that I'm going to replace myself with someone on my team because <laughs> I want it to be, like you said, not dependent on anybody, including myself. In some ways, I want to do it because <laughs> as I tell him and he gets annoyed with it, it's like, God forbid I die or something. Like I want the company to continue without me for a lot of different reasons. One, you know, I love the company and all of the people working there but also like my family and everything would be able to have the income and so like that's kind of where i'm at is like i'm trying to replace myself now <laughs> yeah. that's what we try to teach all our leads is like you should you should be learning how to replace yourself so you can go start something new And my biggest job, like I have two really big jobs, coaching the people that I have and finding really great people to join the org. Those are my two biggest focuses as, as a VP of product. And you think it would be product strategy or, or, or something like that, but it's really, uh, it's really those two things. It segues into the, the future of games question, if you like, actually. Yeah, let's do the future of games. Right, okay, so future of games. I think there are two things that have surprised me a lot recently. And one of them is around the emergence of triple-A quality cross-platform play, that really caught me by surprise. And I feel really stupid about that because it's very obvious now, but I never thought there would be a first-person shooter like Fortnite that people were willing to play on their mobile device. I'm not really willing to play it. Like I'll play it because I'm in the mobile games industry, but I wanna play Fortnite on my PlayStation in my living room really comfortable. 
And I think part of that is like a lot of um, my generation grew up playing games and we're part of these like wars for graphics, like, you know, the progression from Nintendo to Super Nintendo and fighting with Sega, and PlayStation, Xbox. And it was like, we saw the evolution of graphics happening to the point where like, there's a lot of experiences that I've learned I can only enjoy when they're really, really polished in a certain format. And there's an entire generation of people who have had an iPhone for you know their entire gaming life. They're used to the form factor, like they're used to the graphics quality, and they don't care. They're willing to play Fortnite. They're willing to play Genshin Impact on their phone. And that, to me, I just would never have thought that was going to happen. If anybody came to me and pitched Fortnite to be big on mobile, I would have said they were, you know, they were crazy. It's not going to happen. And so I just completely missed that, and it seems so obvious now. So I think in the future, we're going to see a lot more of these cross-platform kinds of games with really high-quality games happening uh, on mobile and, and being cross-platform. And part of that, I think, is we're going to see the same thing that happened on, on Facebook and mobile, where people try to find you know older game experiences and bring them to a new audience. I think that's going to continue to happen. So there's like a lot of games that younger audiences would really enjoy. Those kinds of opportunities, I don't know what the next one's going to be, but I suspect that the difference between a mobile experience and uh, a cross-platform experience is going to continue to blur. The production budgets are going to continue to go up. But I think that there's still always going to be a really good audience and a good niche for games that fit the mobile experience of like, I'm playing the game casually while I'm watching TV. Um, I'm playing a game that, you know, I can play while I'm on the bus. And I don't mean by that, like a shallow game experience. Our games are built around, around a chat engine. And what that means is that they're inherently multiplayer and they have a lot of asynchronous gameplay, but it's quite deep. So we have, you know, a March battle engine and it you know has people that have been playing the game for four or five years they they love the game and they play really really deeply and those experiences are typically targeted towards a more male-centric audience and i think that what we're going to see is that you can make a profitable business targeting other audiences and a really good way to think about this i think is to think about the activities that people do in games are very much either hyper casual it's like match three and then they add some RPG layers on top to try to like get people deeper into the monetization of the game and higher retention long-term. Or they're all centered around some kind of violence. And there's a lot of interesting games that are taking deep mechanics and building them for, for different audiences. And I think a really good example of this is um, something like Love, Nikki, which is a fashion battler. And it's like one of the most brilliant games I've played. The whole game, the fiction, is that you enter into a new dimension and in this new reality, all of history has been determined through fashion battles. And you have to go on a quest to become the best fashion battler. But it's a deep RPG game. You dress up your character and each of the you know, items that you acquire on your quest have different um, skills and traits. And you battle other characters in fashion battles. And most of the people that I talk about making games miss it. They haven't played it, or they played it a little bit like, yeah, I, didn't, I don't know, the UI was really bad. I'm like, I don't know, I didn't really like the art. It's not for me. I'm like, you're missing such a brilliant product innovation. They're taking a deep RPG mechanic and they're serving it up for an audience unabashedly for, you know, a more female-centered audience. And, and it's wonderful. It's a wonderful product innovation. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for us as game designers 
to think about what kinds of experiences other audiences want. And it's not about making those shallow. I think it's a huge mistake when you look at a hyper-casual game that thinks that the only thing that this audience wants is match three. Like everything's going to be around match three. They're not, you know, unsophisticated. Like there, there's maybe an idea that like, hey, the casual audience is learning more about game designs as they've grown up with these games. And they're like accepting of, you know, more RPG audiences. False. That's wrong. Game designers are learning how to apply classic game design systems to new audiences, but it requires a shift in thinking away from what you think is going to be fun towards talking to people, like looking at games that serve other audiences. Like what are successful games that are, you know, massive businesses, but are like slipping under the radar because they're not in like the top of the strategy genre. How do you like create deep systems that can be applied to those other mechanics? Thanks so much for listening, everyone. And thanks again to Tabor for coming onto the show. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we can't wait to make more of them just like this one for you. So until then, here's a little something to close us out. And, it, and people have a lot of fun with it. They Everything in our studio is named after sea creatures. It's just a part of the culture. I think the first backend service we made was called Squid. And so now everything has to be named after sea creatures. Uh, something kind of neat that evolves. I had this idea of product cells, and then they st- people started naming them after sea creatures as well. So they kind of like have names like Barracuda or like And so, so they kind of become almost like part of like the mythology of the studio is like, well, the Barracuda cell did this and here's their playbook on on how to solve like early retention problems.